Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino brings a message on the subject of Thanksgiving. And now, here's Carrie. Thank you, Steve, Vicki, and Bruce. As I told uh, Steve earlier when he told me what the songs were going to be, I was going to say you don't need a sermon after that, but I'll try. So tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day in Canada. That's the one day of the year that turkeys fear the most. My talk this morning may not be as one we're accustomed to on to hearing on Thanksgiving. In fact, it may sound similar to a modern day Ecclesiastes. There's a song we sang this morning, and I like to, I like us to focus on the words of that song as the first half of my talk may be a bit disheartening. And the words are, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Life is very hard. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to be thankful. And during the Thanksgiving season, we may tend to put up a good front. We smile and give testimony of the things we are thankful for. Yet, deep in our hearts, we may be suffering. We may have burdens that no one else understands. Our souls might be in despair. These are troubling times in which we live. There are many hurting people, but the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is telling new Christians how they should live. He writes, Give thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how could any of us do this unless we have the mind of Christ or unless we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us? It's probably more natural to complain in our troubles and bad times than to remember God's grace. When we're feeling struck down by some affliction or we're angry at someone for doing something that seems to us to be very thoughtless, we have difficulty feeling grateful to God for the circumstances that we're in. Instead of wanting to praise God or pray to him about the situation with thanksgiving, we may want to feel sorry for ourselves and our hearts are deeply troubled. And hasn't it seemed that the world has gone absolutely insane and violent over the last six years? It's easy to look at all the tragedies in the world, the violence and the unrest, and get caught up in all the grief. COVID, climate change, high gas prices, high food prices, inflation, wars and rumors of war, danger of nuclear disaster, bomb threats in school, and everywhere you look, people are so angry 
And there's so much mistrust of authorities and organized religion. The U.S. Capitol is stormed by a mob with guns and murder in their hearts. The occupation of Ottawa, respect for law and order, and the enormous stress on Ottawa citizens and their families, surrounded by horns blowing all day and night. Their freedom and their rights taken away by those calling themselves the Freedom Convoy. Are you disheartened yet? Well, hang on, there's more. <laughs> Here's what Michael Corrin, an Anglican clergyman, wrote in an article in the Toronto Star. <clears throat> it's titled, Canadian Christian Nationalism is Not Christian. It's not Canadian <clears throat> or patriotic either. And the article reads, Jesus said, you change the world by changing your heart. <clears throat> Christian nationalism, excuse me, Christian nationalism says you change the world by shouting at and insulting people. We see the signs of protests and rallies and saw them in abundance during the Ottawa occupation. Misplaced, sometimes misspelled Bible quotes call for the restoration of the kingdom of God. Pictures of rosaries wrapped around offensive right-wing statements and prayer meetings held by people who proceed to wish death on the prime minister and use obscene language about their opponents. Whatever, whatever else it is, the kingdom of God is decidedly not a call to violent revolution. Jesus stood in direct opposition to nationalism. The essence of his teaching is that he came for all, irrespective of race or nation, and that one person could not have two masters. The Gospels preach love, tolerance, gentleness, forgiveness, and equality. I fear that our clumsy pronouncements, our name-calling, our hysteria about important issues, in short, our lack of grace, may in the end prove so damaging that society no longer looks to us for the guidance it needs. And to quote Mother Teresa, words which do not give the light of Christ increase the darkness. When I think of the reason I get so upset with my fellow Christians, some of my fellow Christians, Philip Yancey describes perfectly why. He writes, Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently than they do. And then he says, the only hope that any of us have, regardless of our particular sins, lies in a ruthless trust in a God who inexplicitly loves sinners, including those who sin differently than we do. Philip Yancey also writes, If my activism, however well-motivated, drives out love, then I have misunderstood Jesus' gospel. I am stuck with law, not the gospel of grace. C.S. Lewis observed, Almost all crimes of Christian history have come about when religion is confused with politics. Politics, which always runs by the rules of ungrace, allures us to trade away grace for power, a temptation the church has often been unable to resist. C.S. Lewis shocked many people in his day when he came out in favor 
of allowing divorce on the grounds that we Christians have no right to impose our morality on society at large. Although he would continue to oppose divorce on moral grounds, he maintained the distinction between morality and legality. So what is it that would make a non-Christian desire to explore Christianity? Someone yelling through a megaphone or building a relationship with a stranger simply by loving them? In his book, Disappointment with God, Three Questions No One Asks Aloud, Philip Yancey writes this, My friend Richard has asked, Where is God? Show me. I want to see him. Surely at least part of the answer to the question is this. If you want to see God, then look at the people who belong to him. They are his bodies. They are the body of Christ. His disciples will have to look a lot more saved if I am to believe in their Savior, he said. Richard probably will never hear a voice from a whirlwind that drowns out all his questions. He will likely never get a personal glimpse of God in his life. He will only see me. Life is unfair. You follow Christ and you lose your job. Or you get cancer. Or your relationship ends with your spouse. How would Jesus answer the question, is life unfair? Nowhere in scripture does he deny unfairness. When Jesus encountered a sick person, he never delivered a lecture about accepting your lot in life. He healed whoever approached him. And his scornful words about the rich and powerful of the day show clearly what he thought about social inequities. When he met a person in pain, he was deeply moved with compassion. When his friend Lazarus died, he wept. When Jesus himself faced suffering, he reacted from it, asking three times if there was any other way. God responded to the question of unfairness, not with words, but with a visit, an incarnation. And Jesus offers flesh and blood proof of how God feels about unfairness, for he took on human life and the physical reality at its unfairness. He gave, in summary, a final answer to all the questions about the goodness of God. Is life on earth unfair? The cross has settled that issue forever. Jesus, who did not sin, also felt pain. Grace is the most perplexing, powerful force in the universe and the only hope for our twisted and violent planet. If you're wondering why I quote Philip Yancey so much, it's because he really hits home with me. I think he's writing about me when he writes, Sometimes I feel like the most liberal person among conservatives and sometimes like the most conservative among liberals. When New Testament writers speak of hard times, they offer no real explanation for suffering. But they keep pointing to two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles' faith, as they freely confessed, rested entirely on what happened on Easter Sunday, when God transformed the greatest tragedy in all of history 
the execution of his son into a day that we now celebrate as Good Friday. Those disciples who gazed at the cross from the shadows soon learned what they failed to learn in three years with their leader. When God seems absent, he may be closest of all. When God seems dead, he may be coming back to life. We can look back on Jesus, the proof of God's love, even though we may never get an answer to our why questions. Good Friday demonstrates that God has not abandoned us to our pain. The evils and sufferings that afflict our lives are so real and so significant that God, to God that he willed to share them and endure them himself. He, too, is acquainted with grief. On that day, Jesus himself experienced the silence of God. It was Psalm 22. Why has thou forsaken me? Not Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That he quoted from the cross. And Easter Sunday shows that in the end, suffering will not triumph. James writes, therefore, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And Paul writes, We also rejoice in our sufferings. It's a matter of time, Paul says. Just wait. God's miracle of transforming a dark, silent Friday into into Easter Sunday will someday be enlarged to cosmic scale. Two months after the murder of Martin Luther King and the recent murder of Senator Robert Kennedy on June 6, 1968, while the nation was in shock and mourning, Elvis Presley, as a final song in his televised comeback special, sang this song, which I think not only expressed the feeling of that time, but also of today. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it because you can't see my hips. Okay. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. There's got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why, oh why, can't my dream come true? There must be peace and understanding sometime. Strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun, where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why, oh why, won't that sun appear? We're lost in a cloud with too much rain. We're trapped in a world that's troubled with pain. But as long as a man has the strength to dream, he can redeem his soul and fly. Deep in my heart, there's a trembling question. Still, I am sure that the answers are going to come somehow. Out there in the dark, there's a beckoning candle. And while I can think, while I can talk, while I can stand, while I can walk, while I can dream, oh, please let my dream come true. At some level, we all share such longings as that song. The world may be full of pollution, war, crime, and greed. But inside us, all of us, linger remnants 
that remind us of what the world could be like, of what we could be like. We can sense such longings in the environmental movement, whose leaders yearn for a world preserved in the unspoiled state it was in. And in the peace movement that dreams of a world without war. And in therapy groups that try to reconnect broken strands of love and friendship. As C.S. Lewis writes, all the beauty and joy we meet on earth represent only the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune that we have not heard. News from a country that we have never yet visited. The prophets proclaim that such sensations are not illusions or mere dreams, but advanced echoes of what will come true. When we awake in the new heaven and new earth, we will possess at last whatever we longed for. Heaven and earth will again work the way God intended. There is a happy ending after all. Through death, into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I love how God reaches the unreachable. Have I mentioned Philip Yancey yet? In his youth, Philip Yancey, in the 1950s and 60s, with his older brother and widowed mother, attended an all-white Southern Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which filled his head with prejudices about Northern Yankees and black people. He writes about his conversion later at Bible College. Bible College was for me initially a breeding ground of doubt and skepticism. <clears throat> I survived by learning to mimic spiritual behavior. A student had to, in fact, just to get good grades. The college required each student to participate in a regular service activity such as street evangelism, prison ministry, or nursing home visitation. I signed up for university work. Every Saturday night, I would watch television at the student center while I was supposed to be out witnessing. The next week, I would report on all the people I had, I had approached about my personal faith. No one ever questioned me. I was also required to attend a weekly prayer meeting with four other students. All four students would pray but I never did. But one February night, to everyone's surprise, including my own, I did pray. To my surprise, I found myself praying aloud. God, here we are, supposed to be concerned about those 10,000 at the university who are going to hell. Well, you know, I don't care if they all go to hell, if there is one. I don't care if I go there. And for some reason... I started talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Bible college types are supposed to feel the same concern for university students as the Samaritan felt for the bloody Jew 
lying in the ditch. But I felt no, no such concern. I felt nothing for them. And then it happened. In the middle of my prayer, just as I was describing how little I cared for our assigned targets of compassion, I saw that story in a new light. I had been visualizing the scene as I spoke, an old-fashioned looking Samaritan dressed in robes and a turban, bending over a dirty, blood-crusted form in a ditch. But suddenly, in the internal screen of my brain, these two figures changed. The kindly Samaritan took on the face of Jesus. The Jew, pitiable victim of a highway robbery, took on another face too, a face I recognized with a start as my own. In a flash, I saw Jesus reaching down with a moistened rag to clean my wounds and to stanch the flow of blood. As he bent over, I saw myself, the wounded robbery victim, open my eyes and purse my lips. Then, as if watching in slow motion, I saw myself spit at him, full in the face. I saw all that. I, who did not believe in visions, or in biblical parables, or even in Jesus. It stunned me. Abruptly, I stopped praying. I got up and I left the room. All that evening, I thought about what had happened. It wasn't exactly a vision, more like a daydream parable with a moral twist. Still, I couldn't put it behind me. What did it mean? Was it genuine? I wasn't sure, but I knew that my cockiness had been shattered. On that campus, I had always found security in my agnosticism. No longer. I caught a new glimpse of myself. Perhaps in all my self-assured and mocking skepticism, I was the neediest one of all. Each one of us must choose whether to live as if God exists or as if he does not exist. And the most important question of anyone's life is this. Is anyone watching? And the answer to that question rests squarely upon faith. And by that and only that, the just shall live. And that February night in a college dorm room, I first believed in a God of love. Someone is there, I realized. Someone is watching life as it unfolds on this planet. More, someone is there who loves me. It was a startling feeling of wild hope, a feeling so new and overwhelming that it seemed fully worthy of risking my life on. Perhaps the only effective antidote to the wickedness around us live differently from this moment forward. I think a question we have to consider is this. How can we be thankful in the midst of times of trouble? One of the most calming and comforting thoughts is the wonders of God's creation. When we stop and look at the beauty of God's creation, it will always cause the cares of this world to grow dim. There are many wonders of God's creation that we can reflect on. God is good, and his creation is amazing. When we see the wonders of God, we find ourselves speechless. 
To think that God holds all of this together is simply mind-boggling. In order to be thankful in the midst of times of trouble, we not only should remember the wonders of God's creation, but also remember how God has worked in his church in the past. Remember the days of revival? Remember the times when God moved in very real and specific ways. And as we do, we're reminded that the God who worked and moved among us in the past is the same God that we serve today. If he can do the miraculous in the past, he certainly can do the miraculous today. Remember the time when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage? God redeemed his people. Jesus Christ redeemed us on the cross. He paid the ultimate price of sin and he set us free from the bondage of sin. In troubled times, we must never forget how Jesus saved us. We must never forget his grace and his love. We should never forget where we would be if it were not for the love and grace of God given to us through his Son on the cross of Calvary. There is comfort and peace found in the cross. So when life gets us down and we struggle to be thankful, remember the power of God. We serve an omnipotent God who can do anything. He's an all-powerful God. There is absolutely nothing that God cannot do. If he can calm the waves of the sea, he can calm the storms in our life. If he can part the waters, he can open up the doors for our life. If he can shut the lion's mouth, he can quiet our dilemma. If he can raise the dead, there's absolutely nothing in this life that we cannot endure if Jesus is on our side. His power reaches from the brightest star to the lowliest of all creatures. He can do it all. He is God. Remembering his power gives us hope that we need to carry on. Knowing that God can see us through, we have the confidence that we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. So this Thanksgiving, we must not allow our soul to be anguished. Look at the wonderful things that God has done and all that he is. We must not give up on God because he never gives up on us. We must get our eyes off of the circumstances we are in and get our eyes on the one who can do it all. When we remember, the cares of the world grows dim and our hearts can be truly thankful. What a glorious and wonderful, loving God that we have. Because of Jesus, we can call him Father. Because of Jesus, we are shown grace. The world tempts us to believe that we can make it on our own. But grace corrects that error. As we accept ourselves fully the way God accepts us, we start to accept those around us. As we grow in the knowledge In our knowledge of his perfect goodness, we often reflect on the new heart that he has given us. 
Our new heart is a heart that accepts, a heart that loves, a heart that respects, a heart that doesn't hold grudges but forgives, a heart just like God's. People pay attention when they're loved. They notice it because it's very, very unusual. Our love may even come across as a little out of place given the deprived world that we live in. I'm taken by Mother Teresa's answer as to why she helps the needy. She answers, each one of them is Jesus in disguise. God invites us to live from the heart, but only if we have a new heart given by him. When we hear and believe the message that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead to give us new life, and we open the door of our life to him, Jesus promises to come in and to change us from the inside out. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. So let us have a thankful heart as we remember that out there in the dark, there's a beckoning candle. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Indeed, it really is all about him and not about us. And yet, it's about us trusting in him and having our faith in him, isn't it? Before we do, I'd like to add one verse to what Karis mentioned this morning. A verse that I've often thought about in the context of what he's talking about. The verse is found in Philippians chapter 4, begins at verse 11. It says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether fed or hungry or living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let us ponder upon that as we face the world. Father, we do thank you for the message we shared this morning. We thank you for the message of hope, for the message of grace, a message of love and compassion for people in need, for people who have nothing to offer but themselves. Even in their sinful state, Lord, you take them, pick them up, and love them. Lord Jesus Christ, we wish to confess to you this morning, we love you, and we thank you. And we wish to go this day with the thoughts of what you planted within our hearts, Lord Jesus. That you are all we need, and in whom we trust. In the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.